May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. John Mogan was released from prison this past year in the summer. He'd been sent there for trying to rob a bank in Lancaster, Ohio, about 20 miles from Columbus. While he was out on parole, he met up with a young lady, Ashley Dubow, and together they robbed a bank in Asheville, Ohio, just a few miles away from Lancaster and just a few miles south of Columbus. Apparently, um, Mr. Mogan walks into the bank wearing a, a hooded sweatshirt with a hood pulled up and uh, walked to the teller and handed her a note, put a large amount of money in this bag, and she did as she was told, and he walks out and got away. Um, no sunglasses, no mask, just uh, some makeup that he had placed, had uh, the young woman placed on his face to cover up these facial tattoos that he had. But other than that, he walks in and walks out. Um, here's the absurd part. Not only do you walk in without a mask and no attempt to cover up your identity, really, but as soon as they got away, this, this young couple began posting pictures on their Facebook account of themselves with large amounts of money. In one of them, Mr. Mogan had taken a large stack of bills, folded it over, and was like trying to bite into it, and he had cleverly put on the bottom of the, a mixed stack, um, his version of, I guess, a sandwich that McDonald's might have sold. Um, it gets better. Um, the police were notified of Mr. Mogan and his accomplices' um, acquired ill-gotten, I guess you might say, uh, gain. And um, they were notified by family members who saw them and were disturbed because he had all this money and he didn't help a brother out. They were upset, not, and not on a civic duty did they call the police, but because they didn't get a share of the pie. Well, you're talking about family members, huh? Um, you know... Uh, I kind of feel like that maybe this young couple is still sitting in jail right now waiting to go to trial and are asking themselves, how do we ever get caught? <laughs> of course you got caught. You were stupid. You did all kinds of, you know, ridiculous things. It was an, it's an absurd thing to try to rob a bank. It's even more absurd to advertise that you did it afterward and not expect to be caught. People do ridiculous things, don't they? They do absurd things, and they think they're going to get away with it. But there are times when people have actually pulled off outrageous crimes. 1990, uh, March 1990, the, the Gardner Museum in Boston. Um, early morning, two police officers walk to the door of the museum. It's being guarded by two security guards inside. The police officers knock on the door. The security guard opens it. The policemen come in, say they have a report of a disturbance. Uh, the security guards hadn't been aware of it. But as soon as they shut the door, the police officers were not, in fact, police officers. They were imposters. They tied up the two security guards, put them in the basement, and then they robbed all sorts of, of priceless paintings, including Rembrandt's uh, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, Vermeer's The Concert, and Manet's uh, Chez Tortoni. All total, the value uh, was set at $600 million, the amount of paintings that were stolen from the museum. But the truth said they, they were priceless. They could never be recovered. And to this day, no one has been arrested, and the, the paintings have never been recovered. They're still out there somewhere. They got away with it because no one suspected police officers of being criminals. 
It was the perfect disguise. And that's how they got away with it. You know, sometimes we miss things, big things, because appearances can be deceiving. Matthew's Gospel. He talks to us about the beginnings of Jesus' life. Um, no, Jesus didn't come from a family of art thieves, in case you're wondering if that's where I'm going. No, I'm not. He, he wasn't from a family of art thieves. But he did not come into the way into this world the way royalty normally do either, did he? Um, you recall the story of the Magi, the one that uh, the, the wise men we sang about. Um, we always call them three. I don't know why we call them three. There, nowhere does Matthew say there were three, but I guess they brought three gifts, so perhaps there were three of them. Maybe more who brought these gifts. Anyway, they, they come to Jerusalem looking for the, um, the, the one who was born king of the Jews because they saw his star. They go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the, is the, the place of the king. And they go because they do what wise men would do. They, they want to go to the palace to see where the baby is that was born, the king of the Jews. And when they get to the palace, there's this fellow Herod who lives there, who is the king of the Jews, um, who doesn't have a baby in the nursery. <laughs> and he's quite disturbed by the fact that somebody is coming looking for this king of the Jews. Perhaps he thinks there's a rival to my throne. And he becomes a little nervous. Something you should know about Herod he was a paranoid killer. He was paranoid for a good reason. People were, in fact, out to get him. And he was a killer because the only way that you stay in, in power in the ancient world when the Romans are involved is that you kill anyone who becomes a rival. Herod tries to trick the wise men. In fact, he does trick them. He says, look, I don't know where the kid is, but when you find him, come back and tell me. I want to go worship him as well. The wise men are into this. They're saying, that's fine. We'll do that. We, they assured them of their, their willingness to do that. Of course, you know the story. They have a dream. Don't go back that way, and they don't. But for those of us who are more interested in the baby than the, the plight of the wise men, um, we're left to worry about what's going to happen here. Let me read to you again from Matthew's Gospel. Now, when they had departed, the wise men, that is, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and there remain until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The child wasn't born in the palace. This one who was born king of the Jews wasn't born in the palace at all. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He had a very hard scrabble entrance into the world. But if it hadn't been for this disguise, he might have been caught up in this dragnet, right? And if he hadn't had this disguise and hadn't had a, his father hadn't had a dream, take the child into Egypt, he might have been caught in Herod's trap, murdering children, which is exactly what Herod does. The lectionary Brian and I were talking about it before the service, um, neatly sanitizes it for us, removing the passages, the three verses about Herod's um, destruction of young children in the region around Bethlehem. But that's exactly what happens. They go to Egypt, this holy family, and stay there until Joseph, the father, has a dream that it's safe to return. Um, another clever disguise comes about. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth, so that it was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Herod dies. Whew, safe to go home. But not back to Bethlehem because Herod's son is now in power and things might still be a little dicey. And so Mary and Joseph head to this town called Nazareth, a little backwater town. 
And Matthew says that the prophets had foretold that Jesus would be born in Nazareth, or that he would be called a Nazarene, actually, is what it says. Um, but, of course, nobody can find this passage in the prophets. So, you know, where is it, Matthew, that he's called a Nazarene, or a Nazarene, if you prefer? Where do you find this? Um, there's a couple possibilities. Some have suggested that what Matthew is doing is kind of doing a play on words, which was very common in, in Hebrew uh, speakers. You know, that when he says uh, uh, Nazarene, what he's really is saying, um, Nesser, which is um, a shoot, a, a little plant that comes up. And, and there's lots of uh, instances of this in, in the prophets. You know, that he'll be like a tender shoot, like a, a shoot of Jesse, or like a spring in the desert, or a, a sprig, rather, that grows in the desert. We might say like like a piece of grass growing out of concrete, you know, a little little shoot that comes up where you didn't expect it. And that's a possibility. A, a, a New Testament scholar, R.T. France, uh, offers another caveat. He says that, um, that really what it means is, um, or at least perhaps one opportunity is, that what, what Matthew is saying is Jesus being called a Nazarene is really a term of derision. It's really a way of saying, you know, he's kind of from this bad reputation town. You remember, of course, don't you, that Andrew, when he's told that, that Jesus, the Messiah, you know, he says Jesus is the Messiah and it's Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, I mean, can, can anything good come out of that place? You know, this is, this is not possible. It's a term of ridicule and derision. And so here's what France says. On this view, then, the words, he shall be called a Nazarene, represent the prophetic expectation that the Messiah would appear from nowhere and would, as a result, meet with incomprehension and rejection. He didn't come the way we expected him to. He didn't come in the way that anybody expected him to. He's born into a small family that doesn't have any real prestige. I mean, they're the family of David, the right family, but they're not... No, well, they're peasants, you know. They're, they're not in the right place in the right time. There's none of the, the sort of trappings of, of royalty around Jesus. And, and when he does come, I mean, it's running down as a refugee fleeing into Egypt, coming back and, and moving into this backwater town of Nazareth. But isn't that the way God often works in the world? Not in the ways that we expect. Not in the ways that we were looking for, not in the, the, um, the sort of the traditional or expected ways. And isn't it the case that when things kind of get messed up like this, when they don't happen the way we expect, we sometimes, maybe not you, maybe just me, a little frustrated with God. You know, we, we had a lot of prayers. They didn't really get answered the way we expected. Maybe a little impatient. Come on, really God, this is not... You're clearly not on the right schedule. Dare I say, and not, not you, but me, maybe even just a little bit angry. Oh, God, surely this cannot be the way it should be. And often missing the blessing, the joy, the delight of finding God working in ways we hadn't anticipated, doing things through the path of providence that we had not expected. I just finished this, um, this biography on George Washington written by uh, this um, historian, Stephen Brumwell. 
And it's really great. I, I recommend it. It's a fantastic book. Uh, mostly if you like uh, battle scenes, um, he kind of goes through great details about every battle scene that, that Washington <laughs> was really involved in, going back to the French and Indian War. Um, but what he does in, in this is, is he sort of dismisses Washington's constant use of the word providence. And he sort of undermines it. He, he, I think Brumwell tried to make, he makes um, Washington in something like a, um, like a 21st century secular humanist, or perhaps at least as a, as a nominal churchgoer of the 18th century. He doesn't seem to understand what Washington means over and over and over again when he uses the term providence. You see, for Washington, providence means that God actually has a plan, and that his plan is actually at work in the world right now. And often... The path of providence is not the path that we had expected God to take. We had hoped, we had prayed, and then something happens and it goes a different direction. And Washington is good with that. He's good with what God is doing in the world. And I think he would expect that we should be as well, that we should have a high view of of providence. That if we follow the Almighty's ways that aren't always our ways, we find true peace, true happiness. But you know there's a, there's a catch, right? If we're going to follow the path of providence, we have to give up on our own path. We have to say that we don't always know the right thing. We don't always do the right. We, we do the best we can. We make the best plans that we can make. We work hard to do the right thing. But sometimes life has a way of, of changing our direction, of taking us a different way. We have to see behind or beyond the, the outward appearances to deeper realities. We have to be ready to be surprised by God. If you read Matthew's Gospel, and it talks about Jesus' beginnings as he does, very very small amount, but what he does do is he he does two things. Matthew says over and over again, actually throughout his, his Gospel, look, this is what the prophet said. Sometimes it's interesting how he interprets the work of the prophets, but he does it over and over again. This is what the prophets have said. This is what happened. The second thing that he does is he says, this is what the prophets said, and this is why you didn't see it coming. Because you were looking for something else. You heard only what you wanted to hear. You saw only what you wanted to see. And you missed God's greatest work in the world. This week we head into Epiphany, the season of revealing that Christ came to save the Gentiles too. He came to save the whole world. In fact, I think N.T. Wright would push a little further. God came in Christ to save the cosmos. He came to, to redeem the whole creation. But in order to see that, we have to be prepared to realize that sometimes he shows up in yet another clever disguise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.